0: What's good, y'all? Welcome to Call America, where we discuss the weird, wonderful, and worrying rituals and sacrifices that make America great. I'm Carl Joseph Black, a Brooklyn-born native that's born into the cult that's America.
1: And I'm Lisa Charlotte, a migrant who totally bought into it from afar.
0: What's up, Lisa? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Actually, I'm doing great.
1: You just been having a little sing?
0: Yeah, just been having a Leaving the podcast
1: life to go start a boy band with Samori? Yeah,
0: I think me and Samori are going to do this rap duo shit. (laughs) It's going to be a thing, you know? Like, yeah, sure. You know, we out here, we got our law degrees, but we might have to assimilate into this rap shit. You know what? what
1: You got to do what you got to (laughs) do. All right, so I have a question for you. Yeah. America or cult? The group exhibits an institutionalized rejection of difference.
0: Oh, yeah, that's definitely... (laughs) That's definitely cult.
1: I mean, it is, but I would say that it's probably more prevalent in America on a mass scale. I mean, obviously for both, but like the answer is America. But okay, it's not, it's not not a cult either.
0: Okay, okay, because I feel like I feel like that's like libertarian America, but not all America.
1: You don't think that there's an institutional rejection of difference in this country?
0: I don't think so. I think there is some sort of like anti-establishment kind of energy in america
1: okay no but let me put it this way okay do you think that the system in america favors a certain type of person
0: yes and no okay yes and no you see what i mean it's like a weird thing because like because like yeah sure we could say institutions favor the rich in america right but at the same time there are many many institutions in america that just favor well, there isn't favoritism within them in many institutions. Interesting. I would say that. Like I and when I think of institutions, I'm thinking on a mass scale. Like I'm not only thinking like banks or whatever, but I'm also thinking about like public colleges. Yeah. You know, those are institutions as well. And they're just like, yo, if you live in our state or if you live in another state and you'd like to go to school here, as long as your grades are pretty good, you can come to school here. You know? Yeah. So, like, I think of those institutions So, you're thinking more well. on
1: an institution level and not on, like, a systemic. Because I'm thinking more, like, when I'm saying institutional, I'm meaning, like, governmental. Because we're talking about America as a cult.
2: Okay. As opposed
1: to the institutions that make up America. Okay. And so, I would say there are some cults that definitely, like, favor a certain type of person. But for the most part, well, not for the most part. It just depends which cult it is. Yeah. Whereas I would say that if we're talking about the U.S. government and governmental bodies, I would say that there is an institutionalized rejection of difference. And that's sort of what we're going into in this week's episode. Okay. But first, we need to talk about cults. Yeah. And this is the cult, honestly, that I know the least about that we're going to cover. All right. And the reason I chose it is because they reject the institution of family, which is one of the institutions that I would say that America prioritizes. So I thought it was an interesting... Counterpoint. So, have you heard of the Sullivan's cult, the Sullivanian cult? Nah. So they were an Upper West Side-based psychotherapy polyamorous commune.
0: Yo, yo, U W S <laughs> U E S and U W S always been on some other energy. <laughs> like it's like Brooklyn, and then it's the Upper West, <laughs> Upper East, Central Park crew that's just doing some other out of worldly shit. Like, they're just always on some other shit. Tell me about this, please.
1: So they started around the 1960s, and they were actually based on Sullivan, the psychologist. So actually Sullivan's work is something that I studied in psychology. So when I saw this name, I was like, that's interesting. It doesn't really seem like exactly, you know, what his thoughts were. But, like, they worked with him, and then they totally mistook his findings. Mm -hmm. So he basically, Sullivan, so removed from the cult, just talking about this guy, he laid the groundwork for an understanding on the individual based on relationships. So he kind of developed this theory of psychiatry, which was around interpersonal relationships. It's sort of like the idea that like our interaction with society is what kind of causes mental illness instead of necessarily like something, it's like the way you relate to society that is the issue. So it's like actually quite interesting. And like, I remember learning about it in school and like it was an interesting thing, but this is he didn't, he wasn't, like, doing what these guys did. So, basically, these two people, Newton and Pierce, started this. They bought, like, a few houses in the Upper West Side. Of course
0: they did. <laughs> and
1: they decided that they were going to, like, reject the notion of family. So, every child that was born into this cult was, like, raised by everybody. Yeah. Of course, there's a lot of fucking therapist fucking patients, which it's wild to think that that was, it was actually like quite common practice, even like in the 60s, wow. which is like, it's so like against everything now. Like it's yeah. one of the things, you know, like there's laws around it. Like if you're someone's therapist, you have to like have a waiting period of like six months before you can engage in any kind of like sexual relationship yeah. with them because of the power dynamic. But this didn't used to be a thing. They taught their members that the nuclear family was the source of all social anxiety, which is not what wow. Sullivan was getting at. And that if they cut off the burdens of unnecessary attachments, they would all be better off. And so people within weeks of like moving into this cult would cut off ties with all of their family and just move into the building.
0: So so they own this one building. Well, there's a
1: few buildings in Aurora. Oh, there's yeah. a few
0: buildings in UWS. So they occupied these few buildings. Yeah. And left their families, yeah. essentially, to go live in these buildings and shit. Well, yeah. at least they had a place to stay.
1: Yeah. And they know? were... Yeah, I mean... In New York, in, in New a York great neighborhood. The opposite, I mean, I think there were, like, a couple... Like, a few brownstones, like... It's pretty nice. Pretty yeah. nice.
0: All the way up there by Columbia, Morningside Heights, energy.
1: <laughs> but they were... It was, like, to the point where they were discouraged from forming any attachments, so they, like, weren't allowed to, like... They separated people by gender so that they wouldn't form permanent attachments to people and they will like encourage to just everybody fuck everybody
2: oh
0: shit. Um, and so
1: like so this like, is like
0: one big college dorm
1: <laughs> It's like no repeat customers it's like you it's like, oh, yo, like just... it's like you're sneaking around to be monogamous yes
0: yeah, it's, it's like how dare y'all fuck each other twice <laughs>
1: So that's a Sullivan's cult. There's not a lot of information about them online, but the cult behavior we're discussing this week is the most loyal members so the true believers feel that there can be no life outside the context of the group. They believe there's no other way to be, be and they often fear reprisals to themselves or others if they leave or consider leaving the group.
0: It's like this rap shit means more about to do. <laughs> it's exactly like that. There is no life outside of this rap shit.
1: You, you're in the rap life now?
0: This is it. There is no life outside of this rap shit. <laughs> it's just this rap shit. That's the only thing that matters. We date rap women. You know what I'm saying? We hang out with other rappers. <laughs> and then every once in a while, we hang out with basketball players. But that's it. That's, that's it. it.
1: Is this the rap life? It's just
0: this is the rap life.
1: I you got you. Saying? I
0: got you. So so I, I subscribe to that mentality.
1: Yeah. <laughs> all right so the american behavior we're talking about this week is the mythical norm which is a term that was coined by audre lord
0: yeah and the legend
1: the absolute legend and so it's kind of a different a different episode this week yeah we don't have anybody you know talking to us in the middle we're just going to hear some of audre lord's words and talk about assimilation and being american
0: yeah it's it's weird that like so noam chomsky said this once where you know if you aren't like if you don't assimilate to what the mythical norm is in america you are anti-american but like his thoughts were that like you only hear being anti-american in america like like that is like a very weird term to him and and one of the examples he said was like, you know, if you were against fascism in World War II, you weren't anti-Italian. You were just anti-fascist, mm. right? And, you know, th- that whole idea of being anti-your country if you don't meet your country's standards is like only American. Mm. And this this mythical norm, like when I hear mythical norm, like I I see somebody. I see some blonde hair, blue-eyed white dude who's like probably one. You know what I mean? Lean. But yeah, you know, one, blonde hair, blue eyed, Ralph Lauren wearing, Brooks Brothers wearing, preppy looking, Northeastern guy. That's the mythical American norm character, mm. right? Um, when I think about the norm, the American norm, and he's probably Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Like, I don't feel like I look like the American norm, even though I subscribe to a lot of probably what would be a lot of American norms, like freedom and freedom. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of interesting because people come here and they try their best to become American, even though they don't fit that crust, that look and everybody's having this competition of whether they're American enough or not. So the history of this mythical norm thing, right? Like shout out to Audre Lord who really coined this term in um, 1980 in a paper. Um, Shout out to the papers. One of the things that she said in it is that somewhere on the edge of consciousness, there is, there is what I call a mythical norm, which each one of us within our hearts knows that is not me. In America, this norm is usually defined as white, thin male, young, heterosexual, Christian, exactly and financial. Exactly
1: what you just described.
0: It's Christian bail and American Psycho. <laughs> That's what it is. That's what it is. And it is with this mythical norm that the trappings of power reside within this society. Those of us who stand outside that power often identify one way in which we are different. We assume that to be the primary cause of all oppression, forgetting other distortions around difference, some of which ourselves may be practicing. And I had to read that because it's crazy that she was rapping this shit before I was fucking born. Mm-hmm. You know, which just shows that America has been pushing this this thin white dude for mad long. Like, can we get a new flagship dude?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's time for a rebrand. Can Let's we go. get a re-
0: can, can we get like some guy who like you know doesn't look so white? Can we get him tan? Can we get a deep olive tan out the dude?
1: <laughs> I was thinking about the South Park episode. Have you? Do you watch South Park? Of course. There are a couple episodes which I have been thinking about in regards to this episode and the upcoming episode. So the one I was thinking about with the mythical norm is, you know when those people come from the future yeah. and they're all like, a mix of all races and languages. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's what I'm thinking about. Like, you know how they have ads now with these like little kids who have been like pulled from all these other kids who are homeless. because yeah. They don't want to use a kid's face. Yeah. I'm like, they should be doing that. They should take like all the data from all the people and right. like create this like and create amalgamation this person. And be like, That's a norm.
0: Mythical norm. <laughs> Everybody.
1: <laughs> Everybody mixed together. Everyone
0: put together. Right. an <laughs> amalgamation. And it's interesting because, like, because I didn't fit the American mythical norm and I was fucking born here. I I went to the extreme opposite when it came to, like, fitting in. I was like, oh, all right, cool. Like, like, I already don't meet the standard. So, like, even when I'm in the spaces where the standards are supposed to be, like, I'm just going to not be I'm not even going to try to be the standard. But there are many other people who, in very subtle ways that I see, try their best to meet it, even though they don't look like it.
1: Well, it's the idea, I think, and this has been a conversation that's had a lot lately, is people will like, and specifically for like men of color or white women, like people will lean on the thing that is like closer to the norm. So you have like men of color trying to like win the patriarchy because that works in their favor. You have white women prioritizing whiteness over womanhood. And I think like that's sort of all tied up in it. Right. They're like one once they feel like they're one step away from like being in this mythical norm.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely like especially in my teens, early 20s, I got swept up in the fucking preppy movement. It was like crazy when I was in high school. I went to a Catholic school so we basically had to dress like fucking prep school kids. Oh yeah. And I was like, "Nah, fuck that. I'm wearing sneakers." Wait, you had a uniform? Yeah, we yeah, I yeah, had a yeah. uniform. And we had so like I wore sneakers with my uniform and like they gave out like these things called demerits. Mm-hmm. And if you got 24 demerits, you got kicked out. What? Of school. Yeah. So like you would get one demerit every time or one to two demerits every time you were caught wearing sneakers. Like my freshman year, I had to like duck and dodge teachers so I wouldn't get demerits, and then, and then what I did was I started working in the business office, and got really cool with the president of the school. Yeah. So that even when teachers saw me, they know that I signed their checks. So
1: you just <laughs> making system work for you. So I'm
0: like, you don't wanna, you don't wanna give me demerits.
1: We had really strict uniforms. We would just more get detention, but like we had like yeah, and like very uncomfortable shoes. When I think about it now, I'm like, there was no business for me to need to wear those shoes to school. Like, yeah, why did my school uniform have to be so uncomfortable? Like, I had a literal kilt. Yeah, and it's so heavy. Yeah, and you're like walking around in this freaking. It's just insane when I think back. I'm like, you could have just made it a little more simple. Like, who decided that I needed to wear a kilt from the ages of like 12 to 17?
0: Right. But there's there's so much there's so much media depictions around this idea, right? Like, you know, there's these like older movies like Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams, rest in peace. You know, these movies, this prep school setting where the kids are wearing this nice clean uniform and they like aren't fancy and they fit the American mythical norm, right? And and obviously my school. Tried their best to mold me that way, and mm-hmm. I was just like, "Nah, I'm I'm good actually. I'm gonna wear Jordans with this uniform." But interestingly enough, I got swept up in that idea because not because I wanted to look like them, because they looked good to me, but because I realized that when you look like that, you get favoritism towards success. Yeah, like if you look at a lot of my pictures in my like late teens, like. 19, 18, 20, 21, 22, 23. Like, I'm a fucking, fucking prepster. <laughs> I look like I went to...
1: Pixar didn't happen. Yeah, I like... want to see it. I want to see it. <laughs> yeah. Our fans want to see it. Let's
0: shit, go. Shit, it's going gonna, it's gonna <laughs> to end up on a Twitter, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it has to. No, I, I do like... this to myself every episode.
1: <laughs> 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 but I mean... I think the idea of normal in general is is ridiculous and I think that as a society it surprises me that we still have these ideas like I'm pretty neurodivergent as a person and Mm -hmm. like I sort of I don't know had this argument with my psychologist about it because she was like do you want to go on medication like let's go through all these tests and I'm like I just think that we have this really ridiculous idea that we've like created society to fit like basically like industrial life yeah, and to fit a certain kind of narrative that like we're like okay well that's the way to work and if you don't fit in that and if that doesn't work for your brain then like that's your issue and like then you have to medicate the fit in and i refuse to do that right. so instead i just created a life that like works for me right and i work to my own schedule and like that means that sometimes i'll work a 15 hour day and it means sometimes i won't work at all And I'm very lucky that I work in an environment where I can be like that. And ultimately, like, I work better like that. Like, my boss gets better work out of me because I can just work to my own, like, ebbs and flows of my crazy brain. Yeah. As opposed to, like, having to just, like, get up and go to the office for what? Like, it doesn't impact the work. Mm -hmm. Things are still done on time. Right. So I think that the idea of normal in general is just, like, very harmful. Yeah. And, like, I, you know, you look. I do find, like, we were talking about this in our bonus episode, like, those late 90s movies, like, very comforting in a way. It was just, like, a time, it was, like, the only time in our lives when, like, things didn't seem, like, catastrophic all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, man, they're really white. All of them are really, really white.
0: Yeah, definitely when I was, like, caught up, swept up in that, like, trying to live this Upper East Side type of lifestyle, I spent a lot of time on, like, Broadway and shit and, like, I was watching shows and it was all white, all white casts. I was trying to like watch as much friends as possible so that I could fit in at work because that's what the vice presidents and presidents like to watch. And I was like, yeah, like, yeah, I like friends. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, I fucking hate friends. I don't even
2: like friends.
0: (laughs) I fucking hate friends. I like Seinfeld.
1: (laughs) Which is also all white.
0: But- it, nah, well, I don't know, right? Because, like, it's weird. Because, like, it's a mainly Jewish cast. Mm. I'm wondering, some people have this, like, you know, there's, there, there are two schools of thought here. Obviously, one school of thought is there's just a significant portion of, um, well, I wouldn't say significant portion.
1: I think we could agree that there's, there's not an mm-hmm. underrepresentation, not to do a double negative, but there's not an underrepresentation of Jewish people in American television.
2: Yes,
0: I could. we could say that. We could say that. Like Some folks would say, "Oh well, Jews are well represented in TV, yep. and as a result, you know, we we could put them in the white box, right?" And I'm like, "Nah, we probably it's not
1: as, it's not as straightforward as yeah. that. It's more from an optics perspective. Yeah, yeah. That I'm because like, yeah, from an optics perspective, it's still like Seinfeld does look like a pretty white show.
0: Right, right, right. But to me, it's like the Seinfeld cast was pretty diverse." They and they, and their guests. They had a lot of guests on the show, and the guests were from many different walks of life. So so that's why I liked Seinfeld more. Mm. Um, I, it felt more New York to me than friends
1: well i didn't really watch friends i never really liked it but i watched seinfeld when i was a kid
2: mm. so
1: i could only really like when i think about it i just think about the main cast yeah but yeah definitely better than other shows i watched sex in the city again like that show like i rewatched that, show was that.
0: fucking great
1: it's great but it's so ridiculous like there's a bisexuality episode that's just like so offensive to bisexuals there's like an oh. episode where samantha dates a black man it's super offensive like oh. it's all like it's really 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 bad i was i
0: was i was too young and yeah not, i was too
1: young when it came out too yeah i was too
0: young and not aware <laughs>
1: no if you rewatch it now you'll be like oh, oh wow it's yeah. really bad yeah i don't know why it's getting a reboot but i mean hbo just want to make that money hbo's here
0: for the chicken that's what they <laughs> For but yeah, on Broadway it was like all white cast all the time. And interestingly enough, this week I went to see a Broadway play,
1: which I've been dying to see. Actually, I yeah, I went
0: to see Thoughts together. Thoughts of a Colored Man, and that shit was an all black cast. Mm-hmm. It was black stories. I like. I thought I was watching this shit in on Flatbush. <laughs> I was like, wait, I'm I'm on Broadway. This is lit. Like, where was this my whole life? So it was great to see that, and obviously, it's the first play to like have that full structure, like have that like full all black cast. Plus, also, it's the first one. It's the first to have a full all black cast by a black playwright with a black director. Yeah, I know there was
1: one a couple years ago that was an all black cast. I think
0: it was an all black cast, but Mm -hmm. I think the playwright was not black. Okay, but this is like everybody's black. Yeah, like they're. Yeah, the whole thing is just black as hell, and it's like on Broadway, not off Broadway, right? And I was like, "This is great, right?" And it's
1: right across from Company, so like, I when I saw Company, which is a big, I saw a Company like a week and a half before Steven Sondheim died, mm. which is just wild timing. Wow! But I walked right past it, and I was like, "Damn it, <laughs> yeah. I go that don't win next." Yeah, it looks good.
0: Yeah, for sure. And for me, it's still like like leaving it. It still felt. Not normal. <laughs> and it's not because like, it felt like an accomplishment, right? But it didn't feel normal, mm. which I understand because obviously we know it's the first everything, right? Like, it's the first that I, that I just named. But the the added thing is that like, I'm just excited that it happened so that, you know, when younger kids go to Broadway, there's probably so many all-black everything cast playwrights whatever like these things happen so many times that when they go it's just like we just go on a fucking broadway
1: yeah it's normal for them and i think that's the that's the thing right like the thing that i always get frustrated with uh, with media representation is that every time there's like a movie by a person of color a movie by a woman it's like a really big deal and everything hangs on it and then like people don't like wonder woman and they're like look women can't be in movies yeah and i think that like we've reached like equality when like people can make bad shit
2: like yeah. <laughs> we talked
1: about this have we talked about this before i think we did because yeah. it's like my big thing with media i'm like i don't want every movie made by a woman to have to like hit it out of the park yeah. for like women to be in movies like women have been making movies and been successful at it for a long time yeah. it's ridiculous to think that over 50 of the population doesn't want to see a film that incorporates them yeah. like same thing for like every different kind of like you know marginalized community yeah. and so it's just like I just want, I just want us to be able to make that shit
0: i I don't know if we're ready as a society for that yet,
1: yeah, but it, and, it and, makes me mad,
0: yeah, and I'll tell you why I think why i I think we're not ready for it yet because i don't think I don't think any critic or the atmosphere we live in now, if you really like say that a movie starring a woman or directed by a woman or whatever by a woman, if you like parade it. Right. If you like fucking tear that shit into pieces, you're like this close to like being labeled as a woman hater.
1: I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Because I don't think that people say it in a way like Roger Ebert is like good for this. Like every fucking review, if a movie's not made for him, he's like, this movie sucks. Like Mm -hmm. every single time he writes a review and it's never written as like, oh, I hate it because it's by a woman ever. It's like, oh, it's this, it's that. Like, it's always like it's always just like coded language being used to just be like. Yeah, it's the same thing, like, with, you know, Hillary Clinton's campaign or, like, Elizabeth Warren's campaign where people, they don't like that it's a woman who's vying for a presidential position. Right. And they're not going to say it like that. They're going to say, oh, she's unlikable or she's too aggressive. Right. Or, like, and it's all just, like, it's because she's a woman.
0: Right. (laughs) But it's not how
1: you're going to say it.
0: So, like, that's the the point I was trying to make, right? Like, the point I was trying to make is there have been male presidential candidates in the past— That we've just said, we just don't like that son of a bitch. (laughs) Like, we just don't like him, right? Like, for example, Richard Nixon's nickname was Tricky Dick Nixon because he was a fucking slimy motherfucker. But he got voted in. (laughs) He got voted in, sure. But, like, we, like, outwardly said that he is this.
1: But it's not necessarily a bad thing Mm -hmm. when it's a guy. Like, I've heard people say they don't, like, really like Trump but oh I respect this thing or whatever like I don't I think it's different I think it's different when it's uh when it's gendered like that
0: No I I agree that it is different I'm just saying that that I, I'm just saying that's why we're not ready We're not ready because we as a society haven't created the room as of yet to be able to have that that conversation with both ends Like word Hillary Clinton be like scheming but like
1: hillary clinton i said her first and i was like it's not the best example but elizabeth warren's a good example i think
0: sure yeah so like elizabeth warren we could say yo elizabeth warren she is the most competent person to be president um amongst those who ran but like her policies are probably a bit too liberal for all of america right now nobody said that. Instead, it was like, that lady's crazy. She thinks we're going to blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, nah. see, you probably wouldn't have said that. Well, it... people
1: had no problem with Bernie being super liberal. Right.
0: And Precisely. like he didn't
1: have like.
0: the. They just called him a socialist yeah. or a commie. And yeah. they kept it moving. But he
1: was still the second like runner up in the Democratic right. primary. You know what I mean? And a lot of people thought he would have beaten Trump. So like, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting how it works. And I think that like. Depictions on television make a difference because it gives people a very false sense of like what being American is and what the demographics are of America if you're looking from the outside in.
0: Precisely. And then,
1: you know, you have the really like, I'm just thinking about like Captain America and Top Gun and like all of these like. Oh, yeah.
0: But Donald Trump looks like that, right? And then Donald Trump looks exactly like what the mythical norm American is, Mm. even though he was a pretty fucked up piece of shit, right?
1: But he looked apart.
0: He looked apart, you know? And and, and the added thing also was that he was a successful businessman, Mm -hmm. even though he wasn't. Successful entrepreneur, Donald (laughs) Trump. Motherfucker got his starter money from his rich dad. <laughs> like, that is.
1: Oh, that drives you. So, let's talk about entrepreneurship <laughs> because this is something that, like, I always find it really bugs me about the kind of mythical kind of norm around entrepreneurship yeah. because there's this idea of, like, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, but, like, really, realistically, these people had so much money yeah. <laughs> from their parents, or even if you've had the privilege of growing up in a good home with like all of your needs met, like it's still you're ahead of like so many, so people. many people. Yeah. So yeah, it's fucking
0: Jeff Bezos is like that too. This motherfucker grew up pretty all right,
1: and he got a f- massive loan right when he first opened. His
0: parents invested in him after he left an investment bank. <laughs>
1: It must be nice. After
0: graduating Princeton. <laughs> Yo,
2: what the and
1: fuck? then but it's amazing nice how these people end up like forming these narratives of like pulling themselves bootstraps. up by their bootstraps. The bootstraps. When baby. this is their story. It's just like the thing with Trump and like being the common man. I'm like, how in any way is this it was man? never
0: common, bro. You own Coney Island. <laughs> you own the whole Coney Island, bro. Everybody in Coney Island pay rent to Trump. <laughs> it has always been like that. Like I grew up. With people telling me that Trump is a slumlord, like that they got roaches and mold and they still got to pay rent because he'd be quick to evict you. Like, <laughs> oh, but, you know, bootstraps like nah, no way. You know what I mean? And um, it's interesting. And, and to be honest with you, there's this other mythical norm in entrepreneurship that like it is this whole idea of like, like everything has to be done a particular way. Like To be a successful entrepreneur, you have to fucking Gary V your way through life. You got to work hard all the fucking time. You can't take no breaks because if you do, you suck. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know many successful entrepreneurs who always made time for their families. You oh, yeah. I mean? This
1: is something that I have a really big bug on my shoulder about. I'm like very, very intentional about having breaks and having a social life. But it's something that I fell into when I was younger, for sure. Because it's not just, like, entrepreneurs. It's, like, the way they kind of treat work as well. Like, that you should be, or your side hustles or whatever. And ultimately, like, you're just doing stuff at such a diminished capacity Mm -hmm. when you're kind of burning the candle at both ends. Like, that's super important to have relationships and breaks and all of that.
0: Yeah, And, and not only that, like, like you mentioned earlier, everybody has a different method to their madness. Everybody works differently as a result. You shouldn't fucking have to follow what some fucking bozo on Instagram said. You know what I mean? And and then say if you don't follow that, then you're not successful. Right? You need to find what works for you. Like in Denmark, it's either Denmark or another Nordic country. They have staggered start times and end times.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's okay. So you're going to love it. We're going to watch 9 to 5 in a few weeks for Patreon. And that is one of the things they implement. They're like people have different work schedules so like now as it is i don't usually start work until like 11 o'clock yeah. because i don't know my sleep pattern changed a little bit and i can't get to sleep early at night and so i was like going to like trying to go to bed and just laying in bed stressing out about not sleeping and then i was like why am i doing this i don't have to be up at like 7 a.m there is no reason for that i can get up whenever i want and like yeah. I find that my evenings are really busy running events and stuff. And so I like to take my mornings for myself. Yeah. So I might like get up at nine and like lay in bed for a bit and then like go do a crossword and have a coffee. It's like a really nice morning ritual. And then I find that I'm much more, you know, into my day.
0: Yeah.
1: Whereas I know for some people, they like to like get up and get it done. Yeah. And you should be able to work with your own body rhythm for that. Just
0: do that shit. You yeah. know what I mean? And and so there's a that, that mythical norm of, nah, they just training the out motherfuckers to be fucking hamsters
1: yeah and that's (laughs) yeah and that's the thing that i was saying again about like about different like the idea of normal being not good in general because we've just really created this normal that really fit in with a capitalist society
0: yeah and then sold it you know every successful person wakes up 5 a.m or they'll they'll fucking
1: Every time I see a post like that, I just yeah, want to, like... Yeah,
0: CNBC is fucking <laughs> notorious for that shit. Oh, did you know that Jeff Bezos wakes up at 5 a.m. every day? I don't give a fuck what know, time you get up. Do you know, if as
1: much money as Jeff Bezos, I would not be waking up at 5 a.m.
0: Like, he probably doesn't, bro. He probably did it for, like, a year. <laughs> he probably did it for, like, a year, and that's the year they're talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? And even if he does, who cares? Just because Jeff Bezos wakes up at 5 a.m., doesn't mean he's successful as a result. Jeff Bezos probably found his own rhythm and was like, bet, I'm sticking to this shit. For sure. And that's it. You know what I mean? So, so at the end of the day, like, don't subscribe to that shit.
1: Yeah. I agree. Subscribe to
0: what works for you.
1: And on that note, I think we should go to an ad break. So we are doing something different this week. Instead of having people talk about this topic, we have a reading by Audre Lord. So we're gonna come back in with that.
3: Much of Western European history conditions us to see human differences in simplistic opposition to each other. Dominant, subordinate, good, bad, up, down, superior, inferior. In a society where the good is defined in terms of profit rather than in terms of human need, there must always be some group of people who, through systemized oppression, can be made to feel surplus, to occupy the place of the dehumanized inferior. Within this society, that group is made up of Black and third-world people, working-class people, older people, and women. As a 49-year-old Black lesbian feminist socialist mother of two, including one boy, and a member of an interracial couple, I usually find myself a part of some group defined as other, deviant, inferior, or just plain wrong. Traditionally, in American society, It is the members of oppressed, objectified groups who are expected to stretch out and bridge the gap between the actualities of our lives and the consciousness of our oppressor. For in order to survive, those of us for whom oppression is as American as apple pie have always had to be watchers to become familiar with the language and manners of the oppressor, even sometimes adopting them for some illusion of protection. Whenever the need for some pretense of communication arises, those who profit from our oppression call upon us to share our knowledge with them. In other words, it is the responsibility of the oppressed to teach the oppressors their mistakes. I am responsible for educating teachers who dismiss my children's culture in school. Black and third world people are expected to educate white people as to our humanity. Women are expected to educate men. Lesbians and gay men are expected to educate the heterosexual world. The oppressors maintain their position and evade responsibility for their own actions. There is a constant drain of energy which might be better used in redefining ourselves and devising realistic scenarios for altering the present and constructing the future. Institutionalized rejection of difference is an absolute necessity in a profit economy which needs outsiders as surplus people. As members of such an economy, we have all been programmed to respond to the human differences between us with fear and loathing and to handle that difference in one of three ways. Ignore it, and if that is not possible, copy it if we think it is dominant or destroy it if we think it is subordinate. But we have no patterns for relating across human differences as equals. As a result, those differences have been misnamed and misused in the service of separation and confusion. Certainly, there are very real differences between us of race, age, and sex, but it is not those differences between us that are separating us. It is rather our refusal to recognize those differences and to examine the distortions which result from our misnaming them and their effects upon human behavior and expectation. It is a lifetime pursuit for each one of us to extract these distortions from our living at the time as we recognize, reclaim, and define those differences upon which they are imposed for we have all been raised in a society where those distortions were endemic within our living too often we poured the energy needed for recognizing and exploring difference into pretending those differences are insurmountable barriers or that they do not exist at all this results in a voluntary isolation or false and treacherous connections either way We do not develop tools for using human difference as a springboard for creative change within our lives. We speak not of human difference, but of human deviance. Somewhere on the edge of consciousness, there is what I call a mythical norm, which each one of us within our hearts knows that is not me. In America, this norm is usually defined as white, thin, male, young, heterosexual, Christian, and financially secure. It is with this mythical norm that the trappings of power reside within this society. Those of us who stand outside that power often identify one way in which we are different and we assume that to be the primary cause of all oppression, forgetting other distortions around difference, some of which we ourselves may be practicing. By and large, within the women's movement today, white women focus upon their oppression, as women, and ignore differences of race, sexual preference, class, and age. There's a pretense to a homogeneity of experience covered by the word sisterhood that does not in fact exist. Unacknowledged class differences rob women of each other's energy and creative insight. Recently, a women's magazine collective made the decision for one issue to print only prose, saying poetry was a less rigorous or serious art form. Yet. Even the form our creativity takes is often a class issue. Of all the art forms, poetry is the most economical. It is the one which is the most secret, which requires the least physical labor, the least material, and the one which can be done between shifts in the hospital pantry, on the subway, and on scraps of surplus paper. Over the last few years, writing a novel on tight finances, I came to appreciate the enormous differences. In the material demands between poetry and prose as we reclaim our literature poetry has been the major voice of poor working class and colored women a room of one's own may be a necessity for writing prose but so are reams of paper a typewriter and plenty of time the actual requirements to produce the visual arts also help determine a long class line whose art is whose in this day of inflated prices for material who are our sculptors, our painters, our photographers. When we speak of a broadly based women's culture, we need to be aware of the effect of class and economic differences on the supplies available for producing art. As we move forward, creating a society within which we can flourish, ageism is another distortion of relationship which interferes without vision. By ignoring the past, we are encouraged to repeat its mistakes. The generation gap, is an important social tool for any repressive society. If the younger members of a community view the older members as contemptible or suspect or excess, they will never be able to join hands and examine the living memories of the community, nor ask the all-important question, why? This gives rise to a historical amnesia that keeps us working to invent the wheel every time we have to go to the store for bread. We find ourselves having to repeat and relearn the same old lessons over and over that our mothers did because we do not pass on what we have learned or because we are unable to listen. For instance, how many times has this all been said before? For another, who would have believed that once again, our daughters are allowing their bodies to be hampered and purgatoried by girdles and high heels and hobble skirts, ignoring the differences of race between women and the implications of those differences presents the most serious threat to the mobilization of women's joint power. As white women ignore their built-in privilege of whiteness and define women in terms of their own experience alone, then women of color become other, the outsider whose experience and tradition is too alien to comprehend. An example of this is the signal absence of the experience of women of color as a resource for women's studies courses. The literature of women of color is seldom included in women's literature courses, and almost never in other literature courses, nor in women's studies as a whole. All too often, the excuse given is that the literatures of women of color can only be taught by colored women, or that they are too difficult to understand, or that classes cannot get into them because they come out of experience that are too different. I have heard this argument presented by white women of otherwise quite clear intelligence Women who seem to have no trouble at all teaching and reviewing work that comes out of the vastly different experiences of Shakespeare, Moliere, Dostoevsky, and Aristophanes. Surely, there must be some other explanation. This is a very complex question, but I believe one of the reasons white women have such difficulty reading black women's work is because of their reluctance to see black women as women and different from themselves, To examine Black women's literature effectively requires that we be seen as whole people in our actual complexities, as individuals, as women, as human, rather than as one of those problematic but familiar stereotypes provided in this society in place of genuine images of Black women. And I believe this holds true for the literatures of other women of color who are not Black. The literatures of all women of color recreate the textures of our lives. And many white women are heavily invested in ignoring the real differences. For as long as any difference between us means one of us must be inferior, then the recognition of any difference must be fraught with guilt. To allow women of color to step out of stereotypes is too guilt-provoking, for it threatens the complacency of those women who view oppression only in terms of sex. Refusing to recognize difference makes it impossible to see the different problems and pitfalls facing us as women. Thus, in a patriarchal power system where white skin privilege is a major prop, the entrapments used to neutralize black women and white women are not the same. For example, it is easy for black women to be used by the power structure against black men, not because they are men, but because they are black. Therefore, for black women... It is necessary at all times to separate the needs of the oppressor from our own legitimate conflicts within our communities. This same problem does not exist for white women. Black women and men have shared racist oppression and still share it, although in different ways. Out of that shared oppression, we have developed joint defenses and joint vulnerabilities to each other that are not duplicated in the white community with the exception of the relationship between Jewish women and Jewish men. On the other hand, white women face the pitfall of being seduced into joining the oppressor under the pretense of sharing power. This possibility does not exist in the same way for women of color. The tokenism that is sometimes extended to us is not an invitation to join power. Our racial otherness is a visible reality that makes that quite clear. For women... There is a wider range of pretended choices and rewards for identifying with patriarchal power and its tools. Today, with the defeat of ERA, the tightening economy, and increased conservatism, it is easier once again for white women to believe the dangerous fantasy that if you are good enough, pretty enough, sweet enough, quiet enough, teach the children to behave, hate the right people, and marry the right men, then you will be allowed to coexist with patriarchy and relative peace, at least until a man needs your job or the neighborhood rapist happens along. And true, unless one lives and loves in the trenches, it is difficult to remember that the war against dehumanization is ceaseless. But black women and our children know the fabric of our lives is stitched with violence and with hatred, that there is no rest. We do not deal with it only on the picket lines or in dark midnight alleys or in the places where we dare to verbalize our resistance. For us, increasingly, violence weaves through the daily tissues of our living. In the supermarket, in the classroom, in the elevator, in the clinic, and the schoolyard, from the plumber, the baker, the saleswoman, the bus driver, the bank teller, the waitress who does not serve us. Some problems we share as women, some we do not. You fear your children will grow up to join the patriarchy and testify against you. We fear our children will be dragged from a car and shot down in the street, and you will turn your backs upon the reasons they are dying. The threat of difference has been no less blinding to people of color. Those of us who are Black must see that the reality of our lives and our struggle does not make us immune to the errors of ignoring and misnaming difference. Within Black communities where racism is a living reality, Differences among us often seem dangerous and suspect. The need for unity is often misnamed as a need for homogeneity and a Black feminist vision mistaken for betrayal of our common interests as a people. Because of the continuous battle against racial erasure that Black women and Black men share... Some black women still refuse to recognize that we are also oppressed as women and that sexual hostility against black women is practiced not only by the white racist society, but implemented within our black communities as well. It is a disease striking the heart of black nationhood and silence will not make it disappear. Exasperated by racism and the pressures of powerlessness, violence against black women and children often becomes a standard within our communities one by which manliness can be measured. But these woman-hating acts are rarely discussed as crimes against Black women. As a group, women of color are the lowest-paid wage earners in America. We are the primary targets of abortion and sterilization abuse, here and abroad. In certain parts of Africa, small girls are still being sewed shut between their legs to keep them docile and for men's pleasure. This is known as female circumcision. And it is not a cultural affair as the late Jomo Kenyatta insisted. It is a crime against black women. Black women's literature is full of the pain of frequent assault, not only by a racist patriarchy, but also by black men. Yet the necessity for in history of shared battle have made us black women, particularly vulnerable to the false accusation that anti-sexist is anti-black. Meanwhile, Woman-hating as a recourse of the powerless is sapping strength from Black communities in our very lives. Rape is on the increase, reported and unreported, and rape is not aggressive sexuality. It is sexualized aggression. As Kalamu Yasalam, a Black male writer, points out, as long as male domination exists, rape will exist. Only women revolting and men made conscious of their responsibility to fight sexism can collectively stop rape. Differences between ourselves as Black women are also being misnamed and used to separate us from one another. As a Black lesbian feminist comfortable with the many different ingredients of my identity and a woman committed to racial and sexual freedom from oppression, I find I am constantly being encouraged to pluck out some one aspect of myself and present this as the meaningful whole, eclipsing or denying the other parts of self. But this is a destructive and fragmenting way to live. My fullest concentration of energy is available to me only when I integrate all the parts of who I am openly, allowing power from particular sources of my living to flow back and forth freely through all my different selves without the restrictions of externally imposed definition. Only then I can bring myself and my energies as a whole to the service of those struggles which I embrace as part of my living. A fear of lesbians or of being accused of being a lesbian has led many black women into testifying against themselves. It has led some of us into destructive alliances and others into despair and isolation in the white women's communities. Heterosexism is sometimes a result of identifying with the white patriarchy, a rejection of that interdependence between women identified women, which allows the self to be rather than to be used in the service of men. Sometimes it reflects a diehard belief in the protective coloration of heterosexual relationships. Sometimes a self-hate which all women have to fight against, taught us from birth. Although elements of these attitudes exist for all women, there are particular resonances of heterosexism and homophobia among black women. Despite the fact that woman bonding has a long and honorable history in the African-American communities, and despite the knowledge and accomplishments of many strong and creative women-identified Black women in the political, social, and cultural fields, heterosexual Black women often tend to ignore or discount the existence and work of Black lesbians. Part of this attitude has come from an understandable terror of Black male attack within the close confines of Black society where the punishment for any female self-assertion is to still be accused of being a lesbian and therefore unworthy of the attention or support of the scarce black male. But part of this need to misname and ignore black lesbians comes from a very real fear that openly women identified black women who were no longer dependent upon men for their self-definition may well reorder our whole concept of social relationships. Black women, who once insisted that lesbianism was a white woman's problem, now insist that black lesbians are a threat to black nationhood. Our consorting with the enemy are basically unblack. These accusations, coming from the very women to whom we look for for deep and real understanding, have served to keep many black lesbians in hiding, caught between the racism of white women and the homophobia of their sisters. Often, their work has been ignored, trivialized, or misnamed as with the work of Angelina Grimke, Alice Dunbar Nelson, Lorraine Hansberry. Yet, women-bonded women have always been some sort of the power of black communities, from our unmarried aunts to the Amazons of Dahomey. And it is certainly not black lesbians who are assaulting women and raping children and grandmothers on the streets of our community. Across this country, as in Boston, during the spring of 1979, following the unsolved murders of 12 black women, black lesbians are spearheading movements against violence against black women. What are the particular details within each of our lives that can be scrutinized and altered to help bring about change? How do we redefine difference for all women? It is not our differences which separate women, but our reluctance to recognize those differences and to deal effectively with the distortions which have resulted from the ignoring and misnaming of those differences. As a tool of social control, women have been encouraged to recognize only one area of human difference as legitimate, those differences which exist between women and men. And we have learned to deal across those differences with the urgency of all oppressed subordinates. All of us have had to learn to live or work or coexist with men from our fathers on. We have recognized and negotiated those differences, even when this recognition only continued the old dominant subordinate mode of human relationship, where the oppressed must recognize the master's difference in order to survive. But our future survival is predicated upon our ability to relate with inequality. As women, we must root out internalized patterns of oppression within ourselves if we are to move beyond the most superficial aspects of social change. Now we must recognize differences among women who are equals, neither inferior nor superior, and devise ways to use each other's difference to enrich our visions and our joint struggles. The future of our earth may depend upon the ability of all women to identify and develop new definitions of power and new patterns of relating across difference. The old definitions have not served us, nor the earth that supports us. The old patterns, no matter how cleverly rearranged to imitate progress, still condemn us to cosmetically altered repetitions of the same old exchanges, the same old guilt, hatred, recrimination, lamentation, and suspicion. For we have built into all of us old blueprints of expectation and response, old structures of oppression, and these must be altered at the same time. As we alter the living conditions which are a result of those structures, for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. As Paulo Freire shows so well in the pedagogy of the oppressed, The true focus of revolutionary change is never merely the oppressive situations which we seek to escape, but that piece of the oppressor which is planted deep within each of us, which knows only the oppressor's tactics, the oppressor's relationships. Change means growth, and growth can be painful. But we sharpen self-definition by exposing the self in work and struggle together with those whom we define as different from ourselves, all those sharing the same goals. For black and white, old and young, lesbian and heterosexual women alike, this can mean new paths to our survival. We have chosen each other and the edge of each other's battles. The war is the same. If we lose, someday women's blood will be congealed upon a dead planet. If we win, there is no telling. We seek beyond history for a new and more possible meeting.
0: So we're back from the break. We're back from the break. Okay.
1: Typical reaction to Order Lord right there?
0: Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I got to I got to let you go first on this. Oh, really? Yeah, I got to get your thoughts. You know what I'm saying like there's so much I learned about women and the women's movement through that.
1: Yeah, everything she says is amazing. I really liked the idea of a new definition of power and i feel like i don't know if we've spoken about this before but i know i've spoken on it before where like you know what is success in a fundamentally like sick society and like the idea of you know growth being painful and like needing to have that like uncomfortability and whatnot to grow like we exist in a like patriarchal like white supremacist society and then we're trying to build our definitions of success on that and i just think that's ridiculous yeah. burn it all down is what i'm saying
0: it's not really what i'm saying burn it all down <laughs> kind of is kind what of <laughs> yeah. it's interesting cuz there's there's so much to unpack from it right like first of all you you kind of hear about black lives matter as an organization and how it was started by women who are lgbt right and you know this this came out in the
1: this is from 1980.
0: 1980, right? Yeah. Like over 30 years later. These... Oh, you're talking
1: about when Black Lives Matter started or are you talking about now? Because I don't know how to tell I'm... you this, but that was 40 years ago.
0: Oh, 40 years. <laughs> Okay. What well, no, 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 no. Oh, I'm talking about when Black Lives Matter yeah, yeah, started. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when Black Lives Matter started. My not from not, now. not today. Not no, today. It feels
1: like it was 30 years ago, but yeah, yeah. it was but not. <laughs> it's, it's,
0: but Black Lives Matter what started in 2017, so over 30 years. Mm. Over 30 years later. And like it still rings true. It's almost as if she was speaking to us from the future.
1: Or Nothing's but, changed.
0: or Yeah, or nothing's changed, right? Which
1: is always what's really depressing, I think, when you're looking and, you know, obviously I have another podcast, which is like a lot about women's history and you're kind of looking at these stories and you're learning about someone from like thousands and thousands of years ago. Yeah. And they're sort of speaking about and dealing with the same things that women are dealing with now. It yeah. just really feels like we're not going anywhere. Yeah. So, like, I just felt like this week... It didn't feel like there was anything we could do except for, like, put order Lorde's words in the podcast. So yeah, I hope for people who aren't familiar with her work, go and explore her and explore her poetry. And she's pretty amazing.
0: Yes, she is. One of the things that triggered in my mind or popped up in my head when she said, hey, um, just... She said in so many words, if you just behave and live like live like the patriarchy you'll have a a nice and easy life Mm -hmm. which like excludes so many people naturally right and it really made me think about how there are so many people who although they are like naturally excluded from that right like you are a black woman who is a lesbian right or you know transgender right like don't subscribe to it naturally there's nothing you can do to assimilate. But there are others who are, a, if you're a black woman, you automatically are out this, like, structure that they've created, right? But there are so many people who try to assimilate anyway.
1: Yeah, I think we talked about that in the first half of the episode. Like, there are people who, like, A, there are people who try to assimilate and, like, play the game, which I can completely understand. Like, it's it's hard to... It's it's just, life is hard. I can completely understand the urge to, like, fit in. But then also, like, speaking, like, you know, as a white woman, and we saw this with Trump, right? We saw this with, like, the way that white women are voting. They're voting against their own self-interest. Yeah. They're voting on the side of white. They're not voting on the side of women. And you get that sort of, like, phenomenon where it's like, okay, well, if we're in a white patriarchal society, obviously I'm a woman, but I can, like, subscribe to the patriarchy still. And right. I always find that, like, incredibly Difficult to see women who are like against women effectively.
0: It's a very uncomfortable feeling Mm. when you are marching or when you are pushing for policy that protects women. You look at every woman, period, Mm. right? And you feel as if you are doing work that is supported by all women. But then you kind of see 40-something percent of those women decide to vote for the antithesis of that it makes fighting that battle so hard
1: yeah for sure
0: yeah it makes it so hard and in many ways right like we've been fighting this battle since what the beginning since the beginning of time yes yeah, <laughs> since the beginning of time um
1: well maybe not the beginning of time but kind of, this battle's mm. certainly been ongoing for a long time and like uh, the history podcast I have in the first season, we covered Sappho, who is the first woman poet that we ever hear from antiquity. And she is also where the word lesbian comes from. And yeah, she's existed 2,500 years ago. And so much of her history was destroyed by men who didn't like the idea of a woman who loved women or a woman who loved, like who wrote poems about loving women. And then throughout history, the same thing that freaking white women did when they were trying to get the vote. White women and like women in the suffragette movement thought it was too much that Sappho was a lesbian or she wasn't a lesbian. She was a woman who loved women. The word lesbian didn't even exist then. We don't know what her sexuality was, but she was a woman who loved women and they were so intimidated by this. And they didn't think that people could handle that like intersectionality of identity. And so they completely erased that from her history and just kept her as like a woman in history. And so like we've been doing this for a long time.
0: It, it makes me think, so do people, and obviously I, I, I still have a ton to learn about the women's movement, but do you find that historically, at least in the early parts of the women's movement, that there was some form of assimilation that women tried to fight for their rights by fighting for their rights in a quote unquote way that would be respectable or viewed in an okay manner by the patriarchy, almost as if they were asking for their rights instead of fighting for their rights.
1: Oh, no, they were fighting. Okay. They were, like, outside the White House with signs. Yeah. I think that was with the first movement to do that. Okay. They were there every day, every single day. Even in the snow, there were, like, people every day standing outside the white house but they wanted people to assimilate into their movement so this was a movement for white women and Uh, it wasn't standing up for people like for queer women it wasn't standing up for black women women of color it was very focused on white women and that's what a lot of criticism is for women's movements now the norm of the like women's movement is like the upper middle class white woman got it Um, and it lets other people out like the me too movement for example was very focused on that even though it was started by a black woman or a woman of color even that was like completely co-opted you don't you weren't hearing stories of women of color black women queer women you were hearing stories of white women if you think about the big cases in that time yeah so it's a common issue in activism
2: Mm. and
1: it like i mean like i'm not gonna speak you know in the black community but i know that from some being someone in the queer community that a lot of black movements have had issues with excluding the lgbtq movement from their sort of it's always it's there's always conversations about there's it always like and then exclusion. the queer movement excludes you know the differences of people of color it's like all of the movements it's like we should all be just collectively together because we are the majority when we all are together right but it's there's always you know marginalization and people leaving out you know intersectionalities of difference
0: Whew.
1: Anyway, <laughs> light topic.
0: Whew. When I think about American history, I feel like a lot of this kind of really started in the founding, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, at least from a, from an American, jurispr- American jurisprudence standpoint, like we started this from when we were writing the Constitution. Like we said, all right, cool. Like there are going to be people who are not going to be equal to other people. Right. And and all that started with the three fifths compromise. Mm-hmm. All of that also started with who we decide gets to vote. Right? Like white men with property, good. You're good to vote. White men without property, you're not good to vote. Women, not good. Black people, not good. Right? And I feel like over time, what people have done is they've said, okay, cool, whoever has the most rights, we're just gonna try to become them. And a part of me thinks, thinks as if this is like a survival mechanism, like, like people are using this as a point of survival, but it still makes me feel weird that no matter what you do, you will still be you under the eyes of the law, at least, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, the thing is you can try and assimilate it as much as you want. At the end of the day, I'm still a woman. You're still a black man. Yeah. And so, like, if the mythical norm is this white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed dude who's cisgendered and straight, like, we're never going to be that. We're always going to be the other. Right. Do you want to go a bit into the Three-Fifths Compromise? Sure. For uh, people who might not know about it?
0: So the Three-Fifths Compromise, in, in short, so the North and South were the, like, the biggest issue during the writing of the Constitution was slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, Northern states were, like, yeah, we should just do a country without slavery. And Southern States was like, "I right, y'all make your own country then. Because we, we haven't slavery. And on top of that, like, the slaves are people. And if all men are equal, like, they should count for a vote. Even though, you know, they don't got to actually vote. But since we own them, we'll vote on their behalf. You know what I'm saying? And essentially, they came to a compromise where slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person um, it's in It's an terms obscure of
1: number as well. Like, where did they fucking pull that from? Why three-fifths? Why not one-half? Why not one-quarter? Why not? Like, it's just, it's very, does it come from, and I'm sorry if you don't know this, but does yeah. it come from a specific, like, is it for a specific reason that it was specifically three-fifths?
0: I don't know why the number three-fifths, like, I don't know why they were like, okay, 60% sounds about right. <laughs> like, I don't know why that was. Um, but I know that in terms of voting, is hugely important, right? When you think about it this way, northern cities were more populated, so they were densely populated, places like New York City, uh, places like Philadelphia, where the Constitutional Convention was, Boston, Massachusetts, areas that were established a bit earlier than many southern areas, and also just, like, closer to the coast, had more people. So as a result, in order to figure out a way to balance it, the southern states were like, well, let's just count all our slaves as people. They are one person, one vote, too. And the north was like, nah, because you'll disproportionately have more votes than us.
1: And also, they're not voting. You're voting on their behalf, right? Right.
0: Like, that's, like
1: so, I, that's so crazy. Yeah. I had no idea that was the reason why.
0: Yeah, they were trying to, because you know, all of this is power games. Of right? Course. All of this is power games. So you're, you're sitting there and you're like, oh, wow, okay, cool. I got, they, they deserve a vote. And you're like, but I'll vote on their behalf because they're my property. And the North is like, no, nah, you're not going to finesse me. And the South was like, well, if you don't get to count my slaves, like, I'm out. So I think that three fifths kind of, was the compromise between them all. It's weird, right? Because um, there have always been power games played with slavery. Like, one of the interesting things I think about is how the Emancipation Proclamation came to pass, right? So so the Emancipation Proclamation was not held up to a vote. Instead, it was Abraham Lincoln saying, fuck all this. Like, I'm freeing Mm them. And the way he freed them was actually really interesting. So... Because slaves were property and the South was at war with the North, Abraham Lincoln said, okay, since you are my enemy officially, I will take your property from me, from you. Yeah. Because you can't take a citizen's property. Like it, it's their constitutional right to their property. You cannot just pull up and just take somebody's shit.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. That's a constitutional violation. So, but technically they were not citizens because <laughs> they seceded from the union and went to war. Okay. So he was like, "Oh, I well, technically y'all not citizens. <laughs> so I'm finna just take. So yo, if you if you run up north, mm-hmm. you're free. Mm-hmm. And if and you could join the army and kill them.
2: No. <laughs> that's, brilliant. <laughs> that's brilliant. Okay, brilliant. I see it. I see brilliant. it.
0: So it's these power games, which yeah. which really fucked the South up because obviously they like black people were running Be- for the Yeah. yeah. It was out
1: Of course. And also that's the only way they were making fucking anything yeah. in the South.
0: Yeah, and even at that time even at that time black soldiers were still underpaid and black soldiers didn't get as high rank as white soldiers. But They got freedom, Mm. right? And they were like, wait, if the South loses, maybe we'll all be free, Mm -hmm. right? And then we could go back to the South and chill if we want to do that, like, or we could just stay up North and never go back down there. Mm. But like, we're technically fighting to keep our freedom, yeah, which was obviously brilliant from Abraham Lincoln. But even then, you see during that time that some and, and even before, and you'll see it even before um, the Emancipation Proclamation, Black people who were able to get power tried their best to assimilate as well. Prior, prior to um, the Emancipation Proclamation and the ending of slavery, there were Black people who actually like paid for their freedom or were given their freedom from um, their slave masters via death or something like that. Yeah. And um, some of them themselves became slave masters
1: wow
0: yeah i didn't know that yeah they became slave masters and had their own slaves and yeah and in a very weird way were like slaving more aggressively than like some white slave masters and i think that was a way of assimilation as well but guess what at the end of the day they were still black Mm -hmm. which although i don't you know we don't have any data at least i don't have any data on what the mythical norm looked like back then, but I'm sure when you look at More imagery the
2: same, yeah. and
0: storytelling, um, mythical norm was yeah. white dude. You yeah, know?
1: for sure. I mean, it makes me think of uh, so many things, but like, it makes me think about Serena. It's Serena, right? In, uh, in The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. And like, she's, I'm talking about the book, The Handmaid's Tale. Let's not go into the series. I know that goes kind of further, but like, she's fighting so hard to like, in the book she is like even harsher on the women than the handmaidens than like the men are and she's fighting for her own like subjugation more or less because she has slightly more power than these handmaidens she has slightly more power than these marthas she has slightly more power and she's like completely on the side of the men in like a really vicious way
2: yeah
1: or like I think about, like, a Hirsi Ali, if you want to think about, like, a recent example who, like, is just so, like, just so aggressively, like, atheist and anti-Muslim. It's just, like, it's it's kind of like an overcorrection in a way. Yeah. Or, like, they're trying to overcorrect and, like, fit in. And then they're the people that are held up as, like, an example of, like, the the model minority, basically. Yeah. Which we're really just talking about assimilation here. And I think it's interesting in New York because you have these, like, different pockets of people we've, which we've spoken about in previous episodes.
2: Yeah.
0: And we we really, like, went and then covered that in um the Gangs of New York, like...
1: Oh, yeah. The Patreon. Gangs of New York bonus episode where we talk about literally everything except for the movies, <laughs> yeah, Except for the gangs.
0: <laughs> except for the gangs. But interestingly enough, you find that a lot in... And immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. Like you find, and it's and it's actually a very weird and difficult way to look at things because you're doing two types of assimilation when you're an immigrant. Like first you're assimilating into just surviving into in, in the country, right? So you're learning how to speak English. You're learning the norms. But then what also ends up happening is if America does this branding thing of To be an American, you have to look like this, Mm -hmm. right? Um, If they do that, then what ends up happening with some immigrants is they strive to be that, right? Um, In some, in some areas in America, or in some cultures, in in other cultures as well, you see that there are like immigrants who um, use like certain types of soaps to make themselves lighter. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I've got them all through Asia too. Yeah. I, I, and it's, it's terrifying shopping for moisturizer in Asia when you're as white as I am. Cause I'm mm-hmm. just like, I don't need to be white. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, don't give me the whitening cream. Yeah. But like almost every moisturizer you find in Asia is like whitening. It's just, and then you've got freaking in Australia, everybody's putting on fake tan. You're like, yeah. just fucking live in your skin. Live man. in your
0: skin. Right. And, but what I find too is that what, ends up happening is if there is a form of assimilation that these immigrants are able to achieve, they actually like cause social cohesion. Like they actually are a threat to social cohesion in the U.S. Right, Mm. and in a weird way, because what ends up happening is they don't solve the problem, which is white blonde hair dude, blue eyed dude, isn't America, right? But when they try to become him, they just reinforce that, and. Those who want to be themselves here are further ostracized because it's like, look, such and such is not from here. And look at them acting like us, mm-hmm. dressing like us, being like us. So why can't you just do that? Yeah. Right. So it leads to some type of cultural separatism. right? Yeah. Like, which is difficult if you're black and you want to be you. Yeah. Um, that's the beauty of hip hop, in my opinion. There's a guy, his name is Steve Stout. And he runs an advertising firm called Translation. Uh-huh. And he wrote a book called The Tanning of America. And essentially, in that book, he talks about how hip hop culture is slowly making America blacker, right? It's tanning the country where that mythical norm mm. is slowly changing into something that is influenced by blacks, influenced by black culture, influenced by hip hop. and you know, we you, you see it in our ads. You see it in the way some of these big brands tweet online. Mm. Right? They kind of take on that lingo. And I think that helps. Yeah, it definitely sure. helps. Because it allows people to it allows people to kind of be more comfortable when they're in those types of spaces. And like I'm definitely one hundred percent a victim of this, but like when I first started working on Wall Street I used to fucking code switch like a motherfucker. Mm. Like I was in that bitch like, hello, sir. Good morning. Yeah. What did you do this weekend, Carl? Yeah. You know, I went to the Guggenheim with my friends. Uh, And and Guggenheim. Yeah. And my friends, like, like my friends would, you know, like either hear me on the phone, like they'd be on the phone with me and they'd hear me answer somebody at work or they'd, you know, see me interact with somebody from work outside of work. Like on a weekend or something, if I ran into them.
1: Party Carl is a whole different Carl. It's
0: a different Carl.
1: He's a different guy. The first time I met Party Carl, I was like, "Whoa, who is he?" Right. This is rowdy as hell. Yeah, it's great. And for the like, death grip on a Hennessy bottle, just like
0: as always, <laughs> always the death grip. So my friends would see me code switch, and they'd be like, "Who the fuck is that?" Yeah. Like, who is that? I have watched. <laughs> I have watched
1: actually, even in the last few years, and maybe the pandemic has like. Maybe the pandemic's pushed it forward. I've watched quite a few of my black friends just say fuck off to all of that. Yeah. Like, completely just be like, you know what? I'm aware of what I want. I'm going to speak how I want to speak and how I feel comfortable speaking and fuck all of you. Like, people who would, like, usually be exactly like what you were saying, like, mm. in suits, like... All of that. And they're just like, you know what? I'm not fucking doing this anymore. Yeah. Which I am just like, I think is great.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think it's great as well. And...
1: I mean, I pretty much, like, I mean, obviously it's not the same scenario. But, like, I spent a lot of time when I was younger trying to, like be something else or portray something else and not like just speak my truth and now I'm just like, yeah, I'm like an anxious mess. I'm gonna talk about it.
2: Yeah. Col- <laughs> I'm
0: culturally, not gonna pretend. <laughs> culturally they had us. Yeah. Like they definitely had us in a headlock in our like in my early early twenties, late teens, they had me in a headlock. I was wearing sperry top ciders, Tom Brown pants. Like I was out here just like, yeah, what is the whitest fucking thing I could wear? You know what I mean? Let me look like John F. Kennedy at Cape Cod so I
1: could.
0: So I could get a fucking so I could get a fucking job out here. Yeah. You know what I mean? But now I'm just like, you know what? Like, y'all gonna take me how y'all gonna take me. Like mm-hmm. this is this how I'm giving it up now. Yep. You know? I think the rest the rest of our culture is slowly identifying that as yeah. well, which is very good and healthy for us. And hopefully that contributes to moving away from this idea of having to assimilate yeah. to this white dude to just being us and actually contributing to a better workforce For because sure. now we diversity get diversity bo-
1: improves things always yeah. and that's the thing with assimilation that drives me nuts like even just like us having conversations and being from different places and having different sexualities and genders mm-hmm. it, like it's something that expands your mind you were just making me think of like when i think of the mythical norm and actually we probably should Have covered this movie, but we haven't, and that's done now. But have you seen that movie? I don't remember what it's called about the two black dudes who, back when like people couldn't own, like black people couldn't own property, they just got that basic white dude to like front for them for everything.
0: Oh, so he yeah, would just yeah, walk yeah, into yeah. meetings
1: and just yeah, and it's based on a true story, yeah, just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: it
0: was yeah, like I the banker the... or something like that. I think, it was oh, yeah, like I think it's called the banker, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they
1: like they just like found some dude and they're just like, hey, do you want to, we'll just pay you money. To just, like, be a white dude.
0: That's what Cory Booker's parents did. (laughs) It's so good. Cory Booker's parents, I think his mom or his dad, I think, or maybe both of them were, like, IBM executives. Like, they were pretty high up in IBM at the time. Basically, they couldn't buy a house in this neighborhood or this county in New Jersey. So they sent some white person to go buy the house on their behalf. (laughs) And transaction closed. They came to the house and the agent was like, oh, who are y'all? Like, and they're like, oh, yeah, we bought the house. Like, we're the bookers. (laughs) And the agent was like, yo, please listen. Just please don't (laughs) do this. (laughs) Like, don't do this. Just don't take this house. Like, they don't like black people here. Like, black people aren't supposed to, like, live
1: here, you know?
0: (laughs) So, like, just... Sell it. We laugh
1: or we'll cry.
0: Just, just, just reverse the transaction, and it's gonna be fine. And they're like, "Nah, we're trying to live here. Yeah, this is where we're trying to live, right?" And it it was a whole big thing. Wow. And um, no
1: wonder why he ended up in politics.
0: Right. That's his familial early claim to fame. Um,
2: Interesting. He
0: ended up going to like school out there doing exceptionally well it was like a great football player and mm. up going to stanford doing well at stanford as well went to yale law school represented that area pretty fucking well and then went back to that area went back to newark mm. and it was like okay great we're gonna make newark a better place yeah. right um and literally lived in the projects like in a project apartment as a mayor it was crazy so to see that occur and this is like Cory Booker is probably, like, 50-something, maybe yeah, 60. he's not that old. He's not that old. Like
1: I wouldn't even think he's that old. I thought he was in his 40s.
0: Yeah, but to see, to see that happen in that close a time, right, like, it's kind of crazy to me.
1: Actually, he's the same age as my mom. How old is he? 52.
0: 52. 50 years ago.
1: You are forgetting his most impressive achievement.
0: Running for president?
1: Dating Rosario <laughs> <Dosses. laughs> Oh,
0: wow. Yo. <laughs> you know what?
1: We would be remiss if we talked about Cory without mentioning that. Not
0: gonna lie. Dating Rosario Dawson is better than being president.
1: A hundred percent. He won the presidential race, hands down, just with that. Just with that. It makes me also think of like I have some friends who have really male names, male sounding names, but a woman. Yeah. One of my good friends is Rowan, but is a woman named wow. Rowan. And so people would like. It kind of like worked in her favor in some instances where it's yeah. like people would see her name on things and think that it was a guy mm-hmm. and kind of read it as such. And I just always think that's interesting. If I have a daughter, I'm going for like a a gender neutral name, it, male it's, sounding name.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would. I, I like the name Jackson as a yeah. first name. That yeah. sounds fucking great. Yeah. Speaking of names and assimilation, it's it happened a lot to my dad in the '90s. My dad's last name sounds Italian. Interesting. DeLore. Yeah. And he used to get interviews and he's like, oh, like DeLore. And he would come in and be like, the fuck is I called DeLore. <laughs> <laughs> like and he's like, DeLore. <laughs> and, he, and they're like, oh and it made me actually think about people who have names that aren't white sounding. Yeah. Right it makes me think about people like I have friends who have names that people fuck up their names and emails after they say people like they fuck, fuck up my up.
1: name in emails. I'm like, it's written like a, it's not difficult. You just put two E's instead of an I Yeah. and B like it's right in front of you like yeah. copy and paste it if you must. But it's really not that hard to like, I get it. Like there are some names where I've been mortified because I care a lot about writing people's names correctly. Mm-hmm. There are some names that will order correct. Like sometimes people, it'll be like leads <laughs> like this, mm-hmm. like the place in the UK. And like, I get that, cool, because, like, your computer did that shit. But, like, you know, just don't be fucking lazy. Yeah. It makes me super mad. Yeah. And then you have people who just, like, flat out just change their name. Like, my roommate goes by Lulu. Yeah. Her name is Longaway. Just no one can fuck with that. Yeah. And people are assholes about it. I had an old colleague, Aurelien, which, like, granted is a really difficult name to say. And I didn't even say it correctly because I didn't do the proper R. But, like, Aurelien, Aurelian. I don't know. I haven't spoke French and ages. but it's a difficult mm-hmm. name. And my old boss at the um, restaurant I worked at just called him Jack. He gave him a name tag that said Jack wow. and was like, That's too hard to say. And you're Jack now. And he wow. was like, we were like, so we come up, meet him. Like, he's got a name tag on. We're like, Oh, Jack, nice to meet you. And he's just like, My name is not Jack. And yeah. It's like fake French accent. I'd
0: be, I'd be upset too. Like, yeah. the fuck?
1: Like, Oh, it's too hard. That's I'm just fucking crazy. You. Yeah.
0: And you know, like like that really fucks with you because it's like, especially if you really love your own name,
1: especially like, if someone's put thought and care into yeah, what your name is. It
0: describes it, it really like like it it's a it's a definition of who you are, and it's what you'll be remembered by. So mm-hmm. like for people to fuck your name up, that's really fucked up. Like, and I've seen people suffer for their names. Like I have a friend her name is Sean Tavia, and like she would tell me all the time like people wouldn't call her back for job interviews because her because they knew she was black from mm-hmm. her name on her uh, on her resume
1: you know what's interesting about that my sister so like i only learned that this was a black name when i moved here my sister's name is tamika which here is like a super black name yes from what i understand
0: it's yeah it's pretty yeah. black yeah
1: not not in australia or mm. like it's just like not a common name in australia yeah and i kind of wondered if uh she came here if that would be her experience because it sounds like you know
0: yeah a black name. Yeah, that is interesting. Mm. And you know, people who change their names or, you know, create nicknames out of their names mm. that like, you know, are easier make make it people. easier for, you know, folks to pronounce or say or make you more friendly. I wonder if that's a form of assimilation. I guess we could say it is, but at the same time, like if you chose that nickname for yourself, mm. is it really assimilation? I don't know. Right, but...
1: No, but you're choosing it because it's difficult to exist in society otherwise. It's like people, a lot of, you know, Chinese people have English names. It's just, like, too difficult. Yeah. And, like, that perpetuates the issue because people aren't used to having to try and say it. They'll say some, like, overly complicated, like, frickin' Italian name. Or, like, you know, what is it? Like, I can't even say it. Dos, dos, we, we talked about this before. Doskoyeski. Doskoyeski?
0: Doskoyeski. <laughs>
1: how to say that shit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, learn skisky. how
1: to say like, you know, a two syllable Chinese name. Yeah. And, you know, and I get it. Like it's hard. Like there are language barriers of like pronunciation. Like for example, in Asia, it's Risa. Like you don't, well not all of Asia, but like in, you know, Japanese language, for example, they don't have an L in their language. So like, uh, I'm going to be Risa. Usually that's fine. I don't mind the mispronunciation of my name when it's So like, I'm going to be
0: car. The, <laughs>
1: actually I never thought about that I mean you're that to me anyway oh no you're Carl to me because I don't say my R's and they similarly right like my accent like I would say uh Clara instead of Clara or like Mm. you know there are specific names where like oh like I have a friend and her name is Shani that just like feels weird on my throat because it's Shani to me I say my A's long Mm. so there's like pronunciation issues for sure but like I don't know. I just think people should be called by their name. All right. So I reckon we have definitely just gone fully off topic and that's awesome, but we can't talk forever. So I'm going to read us out. All right. Thanks for the chat. So thank you for listening. Our next episode on the in-group mentality will be released on January 4th after the holidays. Cold America is co-hosted and produced by us, Lisa Charlotte and Carl Joseph Black. Carl Joseph Black. (laughs) Our production partner is Three Springs Media. Our audio engineering is by Ellie Brigida, our research assistant is Thea Smith, our artwork is by Estella Illustrated, and the soundtrack is by King Virtue and So Soon. Special thanks this week to Diatra Cannon for reading the Audre Pack passage for us, which was incredibly long and we cut down. Uh, so thank you for that. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with a friend. It really helps. You can access bonus episodes on Patreon at patreon.com slash cultusapod. We release bonus episodes where we cover American movies. And this week we are covering The Truman Show, which was fucking awesome so even if you don't listen to our bonus episode you should watch that movie again because it's great
2: oh yeah yeah
1: if you want to get in touch please head over to cultusapod.com where you can leave comments on episodes leave us a voice memo or contact us through our contact form you can find us on twitter at cultusapod if you want to be featured on an upcoming episode please send a voice clip to the email address in our show notes or the link at our show notes. There are two options now. The next topics we're recording are on the grind, the police, and the body. So please take the time to leave your thoughts on those, and you can find more info about that, as I said, in the show notes. And that's it from us. So long, Farewell. well.
0: Peace. I said my ancestors ain't fight for me to be taking shit from no crackers. I said, I said, I said, my ancestors ain't fight for me to be taking shit from no crackers. Got that bishop up in they chest. That's what got my king and queen captured. Running through the shoots and climbing up ladders. Trying to duck the noose, they used to freeze taggers. Traveling the roots to move to free status. Had to be the best at hide and seek. Shama My ancestors ain't drive for me to be.